The feed and livestock industry is a major part of the global economy, and what happens in one corner of the globe, say a major swine disease outbreak in China, for example, has far-reaching implications around the world from animal health to dollars and cents. Understanding how global customers make food buying decisions, anticipating future needs of that international market, and dealing with trade disruptions and political flare-ups are all part of the deal for leaders in this industry. Welcome to Feedstuffs In Focus, our podcast taking a deeper look at big issues in the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed industries. I'm your host, Andy Vance. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we sit down for a fireside chat with the CEO of a global animal nutrition and biosciences company with 6,000 employees operating in more than 120 countries. In our conversation, we discuss issues and opportunities to grow the feed and animal protein business in China and Brazil. We'll talk about the shifting sands of animal disease issues and consumer feelings toward agriculture technologies, and we get his sense of where the industry is heading in the decade ahead. Forty years ago, an Irish biochemist and his wife uprooted their family and settled in the bluegrass-covered expanses of Kentucky with a vision of using his expertise in yeast fermentation to tackle challenges in animal nutrition. Founded in 1980 with $10,000 and a carload of big ideas, Alltech has grown into one of the major players in the animal health and nutrition space. Dr. Mark Lyons is president and CEO of this growing global enterprise, having literally grown up in the business traveling alongside his father and company founder, the late Pierce Lyons. Dr. Lyons the Younger has at different points in his career led the company's efforts in Brazil and most recently in China, where he led the Alltech office in Beijing and focused on building bridges between China and the wider industry through research, education, and strategic initiatives. I sat down to talk with Dr. Lyons earlier this month at the Banff Pork Seminar in Alberta, Canada for a pretty wide-ranging conversation. Here, let's listen in. Let's, let's start with your vision for the year as you look in your crystal ball. What, what is 2020 going to look like for the feed and livestock industry? Yeah, so, you know, as we look um, forward, you know, really, I think the last year, there was a lot of challenges. Um, we, of course, know about African swine fever. We know a lot about the, the trade wars and, and um, issues there. I think that some of this is starting to normalize out. I think people are coming to realize what's needed. We're going to see a rebuilding of a, a Chinese pork industry, which I think opens up a lot of opportunities. There's also going to be a little bit of normalization uh, in terms of, I think the the potential for exports there, um, but you know by and large I think that you know 2019 was a challenging year. We're seeing towards the end of 2019 into 2000 a lot of positive trends, and so we feel a lot more optimistic about 2020. Um, for us, that's a, a nice thing as well. We're celebrating 40 years of Alltech, and so it's kind of nice that maybe it's the optimism that we we were looking through those. Uh, 2020 glasses um, and a little bit optimistic, but we see it as a as a, you know some really positive trends um, going in the right direction. Hopefully, a little bit of a normalization um, and some improving prices. It was kind of interesting. I had the chance to see you um, present to a group of customers at the seminar, and you asked the question, "How many people thought 2019 was a fantastic year?" Uh, nervous giggles in the audience maybe yeah. were the best response. It's it's interesting. I've been asking that as I've traveled around. I've asked it to a lot of friends, and I don't know why. I've never had. I've never encountered this before. But almost universally, people didn't feel like 2019 was a good year. And so I think that being a company that's always focused on the positive, um, and you know you know, now a year into us promoting this 
Planet of Plenty mission, which we really kicked off in the one conference in May. Um, you know, it's it's something that is is interesting, and I think it, it speaks to the point that people are feeling a lack of control. They're feeling a lot of pressure. Um, a lot of fingers being pointed at agriculture right now. And that's really where our mission is that we're saying we need to come together as an industry. We need to be presenting interesting stories, uh, interesting to consumers, interesting also to people that are going to come into our industry to feel confident about where we are, how we're producing food for the planet, and um, also sharing with people the innovative types of things that are happening every day on the farm. I like the way you couch this, that the, the company focuses on you know, the positive side of things. You're one of the more upbeat, positive, optimistic folks. I've had the pleasure of meeting certainly your dad, uh, repressively so, like just effusive optimism and, mm. and that entrepreneurial bent. How do you maybe take that message to customers, people in our industry, when the industry is facing some of the challenging headwinds you talked about a moment ago? I think that it's, um, you know, for us, it's a decision. You know, you have a choice. Do you um, get kind of bogged down in the negative and, and think about those things? Or do you realize you have a you have a ability to make a positive change and that that's a decision that, that, that you're presented with? And so within the DNA of Alltech, that's just something that that's inbuilt. So we're always looking for, OK, here's the challenge in front of us. How do we overcome that? And how do we make sure that we bring that positivity uh, to our customers? We believe that sales is a transfer of energy. And so, you know, if I'm not coming in full of energy and I'm not able to get my customer enthusiastic about the ideas that I'm trying to present and the thoughts I have about how to improve their situation, you know, then, then I, there's, no, there's no reason for me to go and visit them. So I think it's just such an inbuilt part of the Altec culture um, that, you know, it's, it's, it, is, it does become irrepressive. And, and that's something I think my father's um, spirit really just is pervasive throughout the company. Irrepressible was the word I was yeah. groping for because it's you, you couldn't hold the man down. I no, think if you, you tried, right, uh, with three or four of your best friends. It's, yes. I love that. Uh, I always, always had that kind of soft spot for the entrepreneurial spirit, which is at the heart of your story. And we'll, we'll come to the Alltech story in a minute because I think it's one that, uh, especially this year, is is uh, important to tell. Uh, let's, let's dig into this Planet of Plenty concept. I had the chance... I visited headquarters um, late in 2019 to see kind of early some of the, the videos and stories that you're telling. Let's back up to the genesis mm -hmm. of this Planet of Plenty concept. Where did that come from and, and what, are, what are our hopes and goals for this campaign? So the first time that we talked about that, I believe, was almost four years ago. And it was kind of the wrap-up slide um, at the one of my presentation and my father ended up using the same message and it was just saying look we can come together and we can work together and we can create a planet of abundance and a planet of plenty and i think it ties in with a lot of the all tech messages which are essentially around utiliz utilizing new technologies thinking of new ways to do things engaging and partnering with people and you know kind of that that message of it's amazing what you can achieve if Nobody cares who gets the credit. And so that's kind of a, a message that we talk a lot about within the business. And then essentially it was um, kind of just around uh, Christmas last year, um, 2018, actually, that we decided, OK, we're going to go for this and we're going to build this in and make this the main message of the one conference that we're going to launch in May um, this working together for a planet of plenty. And the team did a fantastic job, you know, coming together and saying, okay, this is what this is about. This is 
this is about getting those inspiring stories, telling stories that people don't know about people doing things that are different. This is about really 100% buying in on you know, sustainability as a core tenant, looking at ourselves and saying, what are we doing internally? Um, we know that our products can improve the efficiency of, of um, food production and reduce environmental impact, but what are we doing within our business? And you know, getting those types of aspects organized, a sustainability committee, uh, signing on to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, you know, all of those things coming together and really building out this platform where I think that you know, with the history of the ACE principle, with the history of the business, we have a very strong platform on which to stand and then you know, to share this with our customers and say, how do we, how do we come together and as an industry present a more positive face of agri-food? Agri I feel like there's been sort of a disconnect, you know, among some of us in, in our industry, and I'll say the broader, I like how you use that agri-food um, term, this agribusiness, agri-food community. Sustainability, I think, in, in maybe its earliest form, we looked at as a buzzword, and okay, this is something that um, we can just kind of pretend will go away, when really, you know, in large measure, there's some pretty good stories to tell in our industry about sustainable agriculture and food it's it's sort of one of the hallmarks i think of farming and agriculture and we just need to continue to understand we don't have to ignore it as a buzzword that'll go away absolutely and i think we need to show our work we need to show what has happened over the last 30 or 40 years if you think about the amount of feed that we need to produce the amount of meat we meat milk and eggs we produce um, you know we've just become more and more efficient and shockingly so i mean this is extraordinary improvements that have been made and so that's part of what we need to share. This industry has been driven by this for some time, but we also, you know, a lot of times when you when you start to talk about sustainability, you hear the comment, well, what does that mean? Well, what does it mean to you? And I think that we need to broaden out that story. We need to say it's also about sustaining rural communities. It's about sustaining, um, you know, our industry. It's about sustaining um, the farmer base. It's about, um, you know, a much broader range of issues uh, beyond just that, that kind of thought that this is just around, um, you know, greenhouse gas emissions or, or some element like that. The other piece is, and, and we had, I think we had seven speakers last year that were related to uh, beef production and talking about it in quite a different way at the conference last year. And they were talking about how through really dairy and beef, we're often using marginalized feedstuffs, we're using marginalized land that could not be used for anything else. And I think that's a story that's really missed. And so this, this great ability that we have within the genetics that exist in the dairy and the beef industry to, move, to, to shift you know, fibrous materials who otherwise, which otherwise would not be used into something useful is part of the, the story that we need to be sharing. So I think it's really looking at the reality that we're in, seeing where we wanna go and certainly provoke, provoking some, some change um, and, and, and wanting that change, but at the same time looking at what we're doing and presenting a more positive face. Your company obviously has a global reach, and, and you've spent so many years in China. You have a, a much different perspective than someone in your role who maybe had never worked outside the U.S. before ascending to the C-suite, so to speak. When you look at these kind of global issues, and some of them are pretty thorny, uh, how do you help folks understand, or, or what, are, what are things people need to understand about how different that sustainability picture looks in China than it does in India or Brazil or the U.S.? Because the, the solutions, it seems to me, are not one size fits all, right? Yeah, and they shouldn't be because ultimately when we think about it, you know, 
consumers are different all around the world. We often talk about it in even the most integrated parts, perhaps the broiler industry. You know, the genetics are pretty similar. The, the nutrition is relatively similar. Um, but what the consumer wants in the end is something completely different. And sometimes the industry needs to respond to that. It's not going to be one size fits all. You know, it, you, you, you look, you know, I, I lived in both Brazil and in China. Brazil has some of the greatest resources, natural resources in the world, particularly when it comes to water. Um, China has the opposite. You know, it's got one fourth of the global average um, water per uh, per um, square miles, square meters. So it's, it's a situation where they have to be a lot more um, careful in terms of their water usage. But it also brings up a question of if we can create trade partnerships that, you know, you think of, of the, the poor consumption of, of the Chinese economy, if they're importing um, a, a pound of pork, they're actually importing uh, how many additional pounds of water because they didn't need to utilize that water. So I think there's stories like that that we can we can share to say that, you know, a global food system is actually the most efficient and most sustainable. It ties. It, it, connects us in terms of economic ties, which makes, um, you know, often the, the global economy and the globe in general safer. Um, but also we can be producing food in places that it makes sense. Um, obviously, we have the Irish background and Ireland is a and is a food producing nation, mm-hmm. produces almost 10 times as much food as it requires for its population. But if you look at the politics that are in play today to remove or reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, just within what Ireland does, there's a lot of pressure on agriculture. Does that really make sense? You know, and, and I think it's getting that that position to have that conversation with policymakers um, and, and those being also completely different in, in, in different countries around the world and playing a bigger role. You know, if we can have those direct conversations with them and share with them things that are, you know, maybe insights that they didn't have, I think that's part of the role of, of businesses like Alltech. I want to talk specifically about China for a few minutes. Um, that, that was uh, your key focus for a number of years in, in the company. How should, um, let's say, a North American farmer, U.S. farmer, agribusiness professional, how should we look at China today and, and maybe some of our trade challenges and issues? Um, maybe we'll ignore the politics for a minute because we could do a whole session just on the politics. But how should I look at China today? What are things I should know about China as a trading partner, customer, competitor? So Alltech has been involved. Um, we've had a, our own business in China. We celebrated last year, 25 years. Uh, we were selling into China in the uh, mid to late 80s already. So we've had a long relationship. At the same time, I would say one of the things we talk a lot about is being in 120 countries. And so even my time there, you know, speaking with my father, you know, we talked about how big should the Chinese business be vis-a-vis the global business? And I think that's kind of the same way that maybe we need to think about it when we're thinking about export markets. If China is our only export market, I think it's a massive challenge. This is, um, you know, a, a, the political system, the economic system there, you know, markets can be, the, the borders can be closed. Um, and so I think if we're too heavily dependent on one market, I think that's dangerous. At the same time, this is a tremendous market potential and there is a real uh, requirement of U.S. um, feedstuffs and U.S. agricultural products to be sent to China. I I think the present or the the, the situation of the last uh, year or so has been detrimental to both countries, certainly in in terms of um, the food industry, in terms of agriculture. And so we we need to think of it as as a good opportunity, but I think that we can't be totally wedded to it so that we're 100% dependent. 
um, because the political issues will come in uh, to play. Whereas in other markets, those aren't those are going to be different. They're going to be more um, you know regulatory and, and and trade issues that come in, not political issues. Brazil, likewise. So typically, we talk about Brazil in the sense of being an agricultural competitor to the U.S. Uh, have have the Brazilians or, or the Brazilian industry caught up more in the last five or ten years and infrastructure issues or one we typically point at as maybe the thing that keeps Brazil from being the 800 pound gorilla uh, at least for some of the key you know row crop commodity type crops or we could be talking about livestock products as well what's what's your sense about where Brazil is now relative to their potential so I think Brazil is is trying to go through a process of becoming more value-added um, becoming a bit more integrated uh, typically, it's been a, a producer of commodities of, of lower priced um, you know, materials, and they just have such a volume that they, they need to they almost have to occupy that position. Um, one of the uh, things, of course, as you've already mentioned, the logistics are a terrible challenge last year and the year before, you know, these these truck strikes, um, just not having a cold chain, the number of other challenges that they have. Uh, make it difficult for them to really, I think, achieve the the bigger picture. But they have an advantage where um, there are no geopolitical issues between a Brazil and a and a China um, in 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 broad terms. And so, you know, those those types of opportunities they're often the preferred option um, over a, a U.S. because they can provide the volume, um, and there aren't those other challenges. At the same time, I think, um, you know, again, this is about one of the challenges for any big market is when you have such a large domestic consumption, I think that's the case for the U.S., the export market is seen differently. When you're a purely export-driven um, type of market in, in Brazil and the poultry side and Thailand also would be more export-focused, um, you know, they're willing to do things. They're, they're willing to do backflips for their customers, whether those are in Asia or Europe, uh, whereas perhaps in the U.S. industry, we're not as focused on that. So I think that there's some opportunities for some entrepreneurial thinking around that in the U.S. and to say how could we, um, you know, have in certain segments more of that entrepreneurial focus. It's an interesting concept, and and sometimes you know the the geopolitical issues get in the way of maybe you know, what what seems like great business, and that's and, and, but you have to deal with that. And I think that you know we've seen it. Um, we present in China often about we talk about Kentucky and we talk about um, you know the state of Kentucky is a very positive image. The image of the horse is something very positive in Chinese culture, um, you know. And so I think in each place you go, you have to find a way to position yourself. So maybe you're better positioning yourself as, you know, being from Ohio or from Iowa or from Kansas, um, you know. And and that's not in any way understating the American aspect, but I think it's giving that nuance of this is who we are, this is where we're from, and I think provenance is something that every. I always think people are interested in stories. Um, about where people are from, and, and that's that's maybe a way to, to present things. And oftentimes, then that turns into finding those shared values. I mean, you talked about the the horse and the culture, and so on. But the, the shared values between we might look at the culture and say, oh, Chinese culture is very different from U.S. culture. When you get into some of the underlying values, maybe they're not so different after all. And I think it is really where you go in with the right mindset. If you're going in with a mindset of let's find the similarities, let's find the common ground. Um, you're much more likely to find that if you're just going in and saying, well, that's different and this is different and not sure about eating that or drinking that, you know, then, you know, you're, you're immediately going to be limited yeah. and you're self-limiting yourself. And so I think in, in that regard, um, when we bring people around the world, 
um, whether it's through our own programs, whether it's our colleagues, we truly try and get them to focus on, you know, where's the common ground, where are the things that are similar, because that's ultimately where we're going to find that partnership. That's a good segue into talking about um, and going back to our conversation about sustainability. Your, your company has embraced, um, to an extent, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So let's get some background as to why those goals are important. And maybe for folks who aren't super familiar with them, what's that all about and what does it mean for the company and our industry? Yeah, so the UN had established some millennium goals, goals and they, these were things they wanted to achieve by the year 2000. And at the end of that, they shifted over and said, okay, now we need to be thinking about sustainable development. And so how do we continue? And, and obviously the UN um, is looking at a broad range of issues. It's looking at a broad range of geographies. We obviously have the, the big heavyweights in the room, the larger countries, but at the same time, a lot of what they're focusing on are, are smaller countries that have different sets of issues. And so they're saying we need to have development. We have to have economic growth um, in, in, um, in these segments. And yet um, we, we know that we need to do this perhaps in a different way. And how do we make sure that developing countries don't make all of the same mistakes that perhaps developed countries did? So that's a little bit of their interest. They established 17 um, goals, the last of which is partnership. And um, what we decided to do was, as we were looking at, you know, our own initiatives, we said, you know, what this gives is a set of um, standards, a set of common language that we can say, okay, we're going to work on this and we can go and travel um, to another part of the world and people are looking at the same types of issues. And so there's some continuity that can be created across um, different industries. When we also looked at it, it was amazing how many of these things, some we're doing directly through our own business, um, life on land, life on, under the sea, um, zero hunger, um, economic development, these types of things. Other things we're doing just because we're in, in business. And so uh, we ended up signing up for seven of the, of the 17. I think it's a good thing to, to check in on. Um, and it gives some metrics in terms of what we can achieve. And um, again, I think the biggest thing is that, that common language. It did allow us to make a connection directly with the UN. Um, we have the fortune that the uh, US ambassador to the UN right now is from Kentucky, Ambassador Kraft. And so she actually brought a group to Kentucky and uh, it was this, the uh, Security Council and they ended up visiting Alltech. And I think the fact that we were speaking in the same language, even though there was 13 ambassadors uh, there, you know, it, was, it gave us a, a, an ability to really connect with them and also share some stories about agriculture that they didn't know. And so I think that's the opportunity, um, perhaps, of these types of, of initiatives. Well, and, and it's a great point. Some of the things are, you know, zero hunger. Well, we can all say we're, we're on board yeah. for that. We all believe in that in, in the agriculture industry. Certainly, when we talk about, uh, you mentioned life on land and life below water. Well, those are things that make sense for our industry. We're stewards of the land and we care about water because water is so important to producing food and fiber and natural resources. But there are other things that go back to what we were talking about a minute ago about those uh, kind of shared values, things like uh, quality education and gender equality, um, you know, work and economic growth things. Those are things that maybe we haven't talked about until more recently as an industry. But when you when you break it down, we, we believe in these things and just because it's, it's part of, of our culture that everyone should be treated well. Exactly. And I think that that's something that, again, it transcends cultures when you're traveling around. You could say, well, these are things that we're signed up for. And again, now you're having a shared conversation. You're sitting on the same side of the table as opposed to having, you know, a confrontational relationship across the table um, that's not as productive. And so 
I think that they are things that, that people can get behind. A lot of smart people have thought, thought about them and sat in rooms for weeks uh, fighting over what these were going to look like. And so in that regard, I think we're also able to leverage the work that they've put in. Um, and more and more, you know, you see a lot of large companies saying, you know, where do you stand on these issues or where do you, how are you going with your, your progress and your sustainability program? And so we find as an agribusiness, uh, a global business, we need to be um, connected with these. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, as a business, there are a lot of these. If somebody said, Mark, do you support gender equality? Let's just pick one off the list. Mm -hmm. He said, well, sure, of course I do. The, the gap, I think, for a lot of us uh, is we don't think about what that really means or looks like. So it's not until you say, hey, we're going to sign on to something like this that you start picking apart what does that mean and, and how are people inside our organization really feeling about do we live our values? Exactly. And so these are things that we know um, are part of who we are, but suddenly it gives license and it gives um, a platform for people to engage. So the sustainability committee was the first thing. We just opened that up and said, who wants to join? Um, interestingly, we signed for the sustainable development goals and I think we might be the only company in the world that signed up twice um, because my mother saw it in our Alltech Herald that we sent around each week and she said, well, that looked really important. Why wasn't I there? And I said, well, mom is, you know, co-founder of Alltech. Absolutely. We can sign them again. And so we did. And so, you know, she's now on the sustainability committee. Um, we were uh, co-sponsor of an event called Women of Food and Ag in Amsterdam in December. Uh, we brought... Um, individuals from around the world and I think that was very motivating for them to be part of that type of a meeting and that's something that we're going to continue on we're going to be talking about it at the one conference the future of work and the workplace and you know these are these are big issues within that we need everybody's input we need everyone's ingenuity to overcome the challenges that we're facing and so equality is a major issue there um, and I think helping um, all of us catch up and speed up on these types of issues is is critical but I would say the internal motivation that this has created is tremendous and that's where i would encourage people to think about it and if they have questions you know that's one thing that Altec is always open to is is uh sharing our experiences and that transfer of energy you talked about earlier i mean it goes up and down the value chain up and down um you know the, the chain of people inside the organization I and mean, that's all pretty powerful you mentioned the one conference so that's a nice segue uh i've spent at least a few days in lexington every may for the past how many ever years I've been coming now, it's quite a few. Give us the, the preview of what this year's one conference. You, you mentioned tackling kind of the, the future of work. What else do you have in store for us? So we have continued to develop the program. You know, we have our big plenary sessions. Of course, Bear Grylls last year was a big uh, highlight, um, pretty inspiring speaker, and I think gave some really good messages that could resonate with our, with our audience and the broader uh, audience beyond. Um, one of the things we've really been working on are the side sessions. And so the level of those has just improved year on year. And um, those, I think, I'm very, very proud. The teams, you know, we basically have all the agendas set uh, for those sessions. We're tweaking a little bit, um, you know, the, the plenary sessions. And you're going to see some things um, that I think are going to answer some of the questions that were being posed. You know, how does um, agriculture step up to the plate in terms of sustainability. Well, we were going to have people there who can help us and inspire us with some of those answers. Um, how are we going to adopt new technology? We're going to continue to be working in that area. Uh, how are people using technologies to overcome um, challenges and, and doing so through collaboration? Uh, we'll continue. We've, we're pivoting a little bit on our Pure Science Accelerator. We worked with ag tech 
groups. So um, we're, we've set out a group, a set of challenges and we're finding the best ag tech companies to come and help us to overcome those challenges. And so that's a new way to be approaching that. So the program's looking very strong, um, 17th to 19th of May. Um, one of the one of the things we really want to engage with is younger people and how do we get more people into the events inspire them to join us in our industry we need their ideas we need their energy and so that's a big mission when we see what is the purpose of our conference um you know it is to inspire and i think it's especially to inspire young people so i think if there's anybody out there who sees a young person who they believe needs to be in agriculture bring them to the one conference Another big program that, that um, you are heavily involved in is Alltech's Global Feed Survey. Now, the data is not available as you and I are, are recording this conversation, but by the time our audience is hearing it, they'll be able to read the report and get the data. But as you and your, your team around the, the world have started working on this, what are some of the big themes that you're seeing filter up in the data and, and some of the key takeaways that, um, that, that you're projecting will be in, in this year's report? Yeah. So. This is the ninth year we create this estimate of uh, global feed tonnage broken down by species, broken down by country. And what we're doing this year is we're going to have a panel uh, discussion where we talk about some of those issues. We're going to talk about how technology is changing, how we're going to talk a little bit about aquaculture. We're going to talk about, um, you know, shifts in terms of what we've done over the past few years, really decades of improving um, feed conversion ratios. And where is that going to go in the future? Um, we obviously this year we, we had several years of kind of modest growth or, or flat growth in some of the biggest markets. This year is very dynamic, obviously with ASF uh, hitting Asia um, particularly hard. You see big differences in the numbers there, and so what does that mean? And and we also know that a lot of the knock-on impact will be this year. It'll be in 2020. There was a lot of um, frozen pork in the Chinese market. Um, you know, I think that the, the impact in Vietnam really came in the second half or fourth quarter of the year. And so we know that this year will be a year of, of a lot of dynamics. And so we're going to try and give a sense of that um, during the webinar and and really give a, a feeling of, OK, where are the opportunities in 2020? ASF, certainly a big one. What are other major trends or issues that uh, if you were just talking to your friend, uh, putting your arm around them as they listen here and say, here are some things I think you should really watch for the year ahead. Uh, ASF clearly still one that's, um, we're not through yet, so to speak. It's still having, um, you know, impact and implications. But what are other trends that you're watching? Yeah, I think I think the ASF is, is a little bit twofold. It's how do we bridge the gap in terms of the, of, of the, lack of pork that is in some of these key markets or lack of protein and what's the implication of that is this changing you know are we going to see consumers go more to poultry in markets that that wasn't traditionally what they would eat uh is this going to be something that we need to keep our eyes open for alternative meats um that's a big topic um but i think beyond that um you know, what, where are the opportunities to rebuild that industry? In other sectors, you know, we see global, globally aquaculture growing and a lot more interest in the U.S. around aquaculture. We've seen a lot of pork producers uh, getting involved in, in aquaculture. So I think that's an area that in the U.S., um, the U.S. has been importing, um, you know, aquacultured products and, and seafood in general in, in, in massive numbers for a number of years. Um, what can we do domestically? And where's that? That is a that's a very exciting area. 
it's an area where I think the U.S. can really compete. Some of these RAS systems, recycled uh, systems, are, are incredible. They do take capital investment, but I think that that's a, an area of, of a lot of interest. And so we would see that one as, as faster growing, um, more opportunities to add value, and, and higher margins. I feel like we've we've had a couple moments in the, say, 20 years I've been covering this industry where we've talked about agriculture and that it's going to become a thing. And there was a time where it was kind of tied in with hydroponics and vegetable growth, and maybe you'd use some of those. Now, as you mentioned, kind of, well, hey, maybe some livestock side folks are saying, hey, this is a good fit with what we do. Maybe we could do that too. What What is the barrier, do you think, when we'll finally flip the switch, so to speak, in the U.S.? Is it is it the capital side? Is it more cultural that we just don't have that experience of raising fish that, oh, grandpa raised cows or pigs or chickens, so I understand what that looks like? What, yeah, we have sense? we have a strong, you know, in in um, the southern southeastern part of the country. Of course, we do have a very large catfish right. production. Um, Mississippi, Alabama, um, other states, but you know, I think that in um, in that regard, when you're looking at the more added value products, I think it's probably looking at how do we tie up, how do we tie in with the the larger players. Um, you look at some of the big food companies, big restaurant companies. You know, they they want this supply. Um, but somehow I, I think it might be capital. It's interesting to me to see many companies investing in the alternative meat sector who aren't investing in the aquaculture sector. I don't fully understand it because I think our maybe our interest is elsewhere. Um, but I think capital has been a big question and perhaps the fear of the unknown. Um, but I think that the, the RAS systems are really um, catching up. I think some of the other ocean systems are are, are very much capable. And there's some people looking in, in this space on the, on the periphery um, It'll be really, really interesting to see how that develops. And and when you look at aquaculture globally, you end up having a, a kind of a spotty map. You've got your kind of shrimp producing countries. You've got your salmon producing countries. You've got a lot of other other fish. But um, by and large, I think this is a is a big sector. There's going to be more and more regulation, satellite technology, looking at, at um, illegal fishing um, around the world. There's going to be a lot more pressure coming into those areas. And so this kind of traceable um, closer to you type of approach, I think it's tremendous opportunities. I want to, I want to close our, our conversation, um, talking about something you alluded to at the top of the program, the 40th anniversary of the company's founding. I had, I had a real pleasure when I was, uh, down at headquarters late, late in 2019 to spend some time walking around campus with your mother. And it was maybe the highlight of the trip. Um, just really loved listening to your mom, Maybe tell that story. So, give give us the the look back as as you turn forty this year as a company. Um, what what it's what the journey's been like, and and how much um, you've enjoyed watching your mom kind of you know in this uh, role of how forty years ago. Wow, we, <laughs> yeah. we did this. Yeah, and I think you know it was great. We we do a weekly video um, every week, and the suggestion was okay. Let's get mom involved and. Um, that I thought, you know what, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Why don't we just sit down? And I basically interviewed her. And it ended up being a great interview. Um, she said, I thought you were going to talk to me with, for two, three minutes. It ended up being a 15-minute interview. Yeah. And it was exactly that experience you had, you know, going back from the very beginning. What was it like? What were your worries? And, you know, they were very simple, I think, like anyone. We've moved to a new country, two small kids. What if this doesn't work? Um, my father reassuring her that if... 
the company um, failed, that maybe he could become a professor. He had his education. He was always a, an educator, and you saw that all the time when he when he was able to, you know, speak in front of audiences. He was really just educating them on on different topics. And her big worry was: Would she ever see her mother again? Would they have enough money to travel back to Ireland for holidays? And so those are very, um, you know, those are those are things that I think a lot of people wouldn't have thought of. You go through that first decade of, um, you know, we often talk about the average age of. of an all techie, and as we call them, uh, people within all tech is probably around 30. Well, in the early days, it was probably uh, closer to the late 60s. Uh, there was a lot of people who had come through the industry, had retired. My father was able to recruit them. They had the relationships, and that's how he established the business, uh, particularly in North America. And, um, you know, then that internationalization, his curiosity to go and travel to establish these offices that are now celebrating 20, 25 years, 30 years of existence. Um, that internationalization, developing the new new products. Um, in the year 2000, we established something we called the Big Six. So we established six technologies that we thought could really make a leap. Um, and this was a point at which, um, you know, he had he had gone from a, a 25 million dollar business in 1994, set a goal of breaking 100 by the millennium. Everybody thought he was crazy, and we did it in 1999. And that 2000, he was he was picking technologies that he thought could each be $50 million products and all of them are today. So, you know, that that next phase of, of growth of um, the Alltech FBI World Equestrian Games in 2010 was a big thing, putting Alltech on the, on the map in a different way. And then we've brought a number of colleagues and companies into the fold, into the family over the last uh, six, seven years. So now we sit here with over 5,000 colleagues in 120 countries. Um, and it is kind of a, a good moment to, to reflect, wow, you know, that really did start with something pretty, pretty simple, um, you know, a dream that somebody had to own their own business. And I think that's the inspiring story of it. And hopefully that can encourage other entrepreneurs to, to take that risk. I mean, I'm thinking as you're talking about their concerns, you know, as a young couple with two young kids, and I'm putting myself in the boots of a, a farmer, uh, if I'm putting myself in the boots of you know, um, somebody who's wanting to get out of that, that nine to five grind, so to speak, and put out their own shingle doing whatever it might be. I think mm -hmm. those are concerns most of us can identify with pretty easy. Like, oh yeah, that's, that's the thing that's kept me from doing whatever it is that your dream might be is exactly. those kind of concerns. Yeah. And I think those are the things that, that the story really can help people to say, you know, um, you know, take that risk. Um, my father would often say that his PhD wasn't in biochemistry, it was in failure. And it was the fact that he was willing to take the risks, fail, um, step up, dust himself off and, and try again uh, and really built that within his business. I think you've got to have that appetite for a bit of risk um, and just think what's the worst that's going to happen. You, you are your own person. You're not Pierce Lyons 2.0. Your personality, you might share characteristics, but you're, you're your own person. Um, your, your mom and your dad's personalities, very different. And yet you've all made it work in, in this multi-generational uh, family business. When you look ahead, so celebrating 40 years now, we've kind of looked back at the past. What, what's the company look like 40 years from now? What's your vision for Alltech in its next four decades? I think one of the things that we're so lucky to have is that platform of international colleagues, of people who have been in the company now for uh, over half the, uh, the life of the business. And so I really see, um, you know, us being able to develop, again, that, that those localized solutions, those really centers of excellence around the world, um, and 
you know, this, this kind of culture, a lot of the things that are just inherent were inherent in my father, inherent in my mother, just becoming values that are part of, of all tech. I, I think that the, the opportunities globally are probably more um, democratic than they ever have been. And so it isn't something that all the opportunities lie in the emerging markets where you're going to have fast growth or the only in the markets where you already have scale. I think the opportunities for our colleagues are, are truly global. And so uh, we're really trying to, to foster that within the business and essentially end up with, I think, what the dream has always been, um, which is, you know, a company of entrepreneurs who are able to express that spirit fully uh, within the business, using the scale of the business, but doing things uh, where they really have, have that empowerment. And I think we're now at a scale, we're at a, a level of capability and we're utilizing technology in a way, really focusing on innovation, not just on our products, but in our in the ways that we work that is providing that uh, platform. I think that's a great note on which to close the conversation. Mark Lyons, I want to thank you for some great insights. And, and I hope that um, the listener takes away some of those key messages that are applicable to whatever their business happens to be, whether it's an individual farm, whether it's a feed mill, whether it's um, working inside a large global company like Alltech. So thank you for sharing those and being a part of the Feedstuffs In Focus podcast. My thanks to Dr. Mark Lyons for such a candid, insightful conversation about the challenges and opportunities the industry faces and for sharing his vision for how the feed and livestock business can help create a planet of plenty. And thank you to Alltech for sponsoring this week's episode of Feedstuffs In Focus. If you want to learn more about Alltech, you can visit them online at alltech.com. I'm Andy Vance, and you've been listening to Feedstuffs In Focus. Thanks for joining us. If you want to hear more conversations about some of the biggest issues affecting the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed industries, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Or you can always listen online at our website, feedstuffs.com, for future episodes. Until next time, have a great day, and thanks for listening.